If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, or you can follow along on the screen behind. <clears throat> Starting with Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then from verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Welcome to Crosspoint Church, and my name is Joshua, and we're starting a new series in the book of Genesis. Just a couple of things before we get started. Number one, we told you that for three weeks we would, um, we would begin kind of a prayer ministry at the end of our services or sometime during our service to give people an opportunity to come down, be ministered to, depending on whatever need you have. And we've been doing that for a few weeks, and we really feel strongly that it's gone very well. Uh, the quality of ministry has been good, and we just feel like it's good to offer everyone a chance, even if where you're at, to have the opportunity to respond in prayer after preaching it in particular into the Word. So we're going to continue to do that. We told you we'd do three weeks, and now we're saying, now we're just going to keep doing it forever. Um, no, I don't know. We're, we're obviously open to however the Holy Spirit leads us as a church, but we want to continue to do that. Second of all, we're starting a series in the book of Genesis, and the way I'm going to do this study and this series of teachings is I'm going to do, I'm a, we're going to do the first 11 chapters here over the next couple of months, Lord willing, then we will... Then we'll take a, uh, a break for Easter and for those kinds of things going on there. And then afterwards, we might do another series, but we'll then come back, do another 10 chapters. We'll cover Abraham, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and, until we finish it. Genesis has 50 chapters in it. And so, I know. listen, there are other churches that have very gifted pastors who can go through the book of Genesis over the course of five years and hold the attention of their congregation but both you and I struggle with ADD. I know this. And so, you know, you, we're going to go through, take a break, come back, and that kind of deal. But over time, if you come to Cross Point Church long enough, you will know the book of Genesis. We start today in Genesis chapter 1, a great passage of, of Scripture. And um, as we kind of get going with that, I love my phone down here. Um, as we kind of get going with this, uh, we know this is one of the great uh, passages in all of, of, the, of the Scripture um, and famous and controversial. There's more stuff going on in this book that people have talked about in the last hundred years than, than you can shake a fist at. My goal today is to look at it the way Moses wrote it to be read. That's the main thing I'm concerned with. Now, when I was... Younger, years ago, Sherry and um, Abigail and I, just the three of us, we lived in Chicago in a little apartment in a bad part of town. 
me being the manly protector, I left them for a trip to Springfield, Missouri, and they were left all alone in that little apartment while I went to Springfield, Missouri. But to brag on myself, the reason why I went to Springfield, Missouri is because my grandfather got inducted into the uh, Missouri Sports Hall of Fame, which was kind of cool for us. So I got to go to that ceremony and see that deal. But I was at the gift shop, and, um, and being a great father that I am, and any father would do this, you go to the gift shop of the, of the hotel you're staying at because you've got to get a stuffed animal to take back home to the little one. You know what I mean? So I go into this gift shop, and I pick out the most, the cutest, loveliest purple bunny you've ever seen before in your life. I mean, this bunny was just cute, floppy ears. And I was like, Abby will love it. You know, she's two years old. She'll love this. And it was, it was crowded that day at the gift shop, and there was a line of people. And so I was in line waiting to pay for my purple bunny. And have you ever been standing in line, and you just feel like something is behind you that's like huge, much bigger than you? And you just feel like a presence is breathing on your neck, you know what I mean? Except for at a down angle, right? And so I'm holding this bunny, and I turn around, and lo and behold, right behind me is Marcus Allen, the Hall of Fame running back for the Raiders and the Kansas City Chiefs. And he was being inducted into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame, and there he is in the flesh Right behind me, and I turn around, and my jaw, I mean, you know, because I grew up watching this guy, you know, as a running back, and then I wondered for a short period of time whether he murdered Nicole Simpson. But anyways, there he is. And I realized in that moment, I am the most Caucasian man that has ever existed, and I'm the shortest guy in the world, right? I mean, check mark on white only. I used to think I had, like, Native American in me. Not so after seeing Marcus Allen. I'm all white, all right? And I look back, and my breath is just taken away. Now, it turns out he's a really nice guy, which was useful, all right? And he's a great guy. But I think about how we view these athletes, and you can't imagine how big these football players are by watching them on TV. Isn't that right? They seem distant. You watch them do the running back, and you're like, man, I could do that probably back in the day maybe, you know? But when you get in the presence of these world-class athletes, you're like, they're much bigger than I thought. This is, this is a bigger deal than I thought. Marcus Allen is a bigger deal than I imagined when I watched him on TV. And you know what my problem is with God? Even as a pastor, sometimes my imagination makes him smaller than he really is. Sometimes with God, it's almost like looking at a celebrity on TV, kind of a distant figure. He doesn't really relate to me. I don't really relate to him. Maybe like a star up in the sky, beautiful, wonderful, but far away. I'm safely distanced from God, and and I can kind of watch him or kind of think about him from a distance. But man, when he's standing behind you, when, when he is beginning to speak to you, when he begins to reveal himself to you, and you turn around and you begin to sense the majesty and the grandeur and the bigness of God, and you've got a purple bunny in your hand, you go, he's a much bigger deal than I thought. When I met God, I was so far from him. 
I didn't have just one purple bunny. I had all kinds of, you know, cuddly little bunnies, and I thought they were a big deal, and I'm in the gift shop of the world and culture. And I thought I was, I was just it and, and the biggest deal in the world. And when I turned around and I saw him, I went, this is a bigger deal than I thought. And that's how you're supposed to read Genesis 1. Genesis 1, what Genesis 1 wants to do is it wants to put God behind you. It wants to put God ahead of you. It wants to put God above you. It even wants to put you in the image of God and in the likeness of God. Genesis 1 wants to remind you that you're imprinted with the greatness of God, that you were made for the greatness of God. Genesis 1 tells you that God puts your feet on planet Earth to look up and to live for divine purposes. That's what it's about. That's why Moses wrote Genesis 1. Now, see, people come to Genesis 1, and, and they begin to ask scientific questions. This is a big deal. You know, is, is the earth old earth or young earth? Uh, is this a scientific chapter? Is this, is this a biological chapter? And the answer to that is it's not fundamentally, primarily a scientific text. It's a theological text. It's asking different questions. Science asks wonderful questions. Science asks questions about structure. Science evaluates structures and designs and, 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 and how things are kind of set up. Genesis 1 is asking questions of function, which, by the way, are questions science can't ask and can't answer. Genesis 1 is asking questions about ultimate meaning and purpose. Genesis 1 is theological. It's history. It happened. God created the heavens and the earth. God started time and material and, and existence. But the way Moses is writing is, is not so that we can answer all of our modern curiosities and speculations. He's writing it not only as history but as a hymn. He's writing it as a confession. By the way, God needs no defenders, amen? Amen. Moses is not like, now there's a God, and I want to prove to you that there's a God. Moses is saying, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you were born, you were born in the image and the likeness of God. You were made for God to breathe down into you his spirit, his life. You were made to walk with him and, and to live for him. You have meaning in this world. It's not that it doesn't ask some broad questions. How did the world come into existence? That is a scientific question. And Moses just simply says, well, God said world, and there was a world. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what he says. Moses says, God said, let there be an earth. Boom, there was an earth. You say, well, was that billions of years ago? Was that zillions of years ago? Was that like 10,000 years ago? Are you a young planet guy? You an old planet guy? Dude, I'm a God guy. I mean, if you want to tell me that, that, the, that the world is, uh, is, is a million years old, okay. I'm also fully able of believing, based on what Moses says, that God can create things that are old. I mean, he created Adam and Eve, it says. You heard Matt read it. It says, uh, God created uh, uh, man as male and female. He made them. So let me ask you a question. When Adam and Eve were first formed and created and brought into this world and put on planet Earth, how old were they in that first day? Were they 30? 
I take them as adults right there. In that moment, God said, man, woman, I'm taking them as fully grown men. Like they say on Center. he is fully grown. And if, if a scientist would have shown up the day after God created Adam and Eve, and you say to the scientist, well, how old is Adam there? He would say, well, let me look and see, height, body hair, 30. He's been here for 30 years. I'm okay with the planet being old. I'm also okay believing that God's fully capable and fully sovereign in creating an old earth. Jesus, he shows up at the, at the wedding of Cana, and he, and he turns water into wine, and they taste this wine that Jesus made, and they say, this is the best wine I've ever tasted before in my life. Now, I am no wine connoisseur, I can assure you, but I do know this, that for wine to be good, it needs to be aged. In one moment, God, in Jesus, creates aged wine. I'm okay with science. Faith and science work together. They're just asking different questions. And Moses is saying, this is who God is, and this is the function. This is why he created the heavens and the earth. Don't push the details. Don't make it more than it is, but don't make it less than it is either. Let it be what it is. And fundamentally... This chapter in Scripture, Genesis 1, is telling us to be gripped by the greatness of God, to allow yourself to doubt your doubts, to put aside your life, and to be gripped by the greatness of God. In fact, Isaiah loved talking about Genesis 1. Isaiah, he was talking about Genesis 1 all the time. It's like his favorite chapter in the Bible. And he says in Isaiah 40, in verse 28, Have you not known... Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah is looking at Genesis 1. In in fact, Isaiah 40 is a great commentary on Genesis 1. He's looking at Genesis 1, and he's saying, listen, man, stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop everything you're doing right now. Stop thinking and worrying about everything you're worrying about right now. And stand on this earth and consider and be gripped. Be gripped. Be gripped by the greatness of God. Be gripped. And so we come to Genesis 1, and we look at how we might be gripped. We should be gripped by the greatness of God in verses 1 and 2. Look at this, Genesis 1, and let's begin to look at the attributes of God as Moses wants us to understand God. Who is God? Who is he? It says here in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The name for God used there is Elohim. It's used 35 times in chapter 1. Now, that's very important because the numbers 7, 3, and 10 are symbolic in Scripture and are used over and over again in Genesis 1. The name Elohim is used 35 times, which is a multiple of 7. And that word, uh, Elohim, is the most frequently used word for, for the name of God in the Old Testament because it's the most general word and the most general name for God. He is not only God of Israel, he is God of the whole earth. Elohim is the universal, sovereign, transcendent, all-powerful God. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, that word beginning, if you could underline it, is actually really important. Because the word beginning is pregnant with the end. If you say something about the beginning of anything, you're saying that there's going to be an end, right? I mean, if, if you say to me, I read the beginning of this book, man, and I'm telling you, it is good. I'm automatically going to read the end of the book or wonder how the book ends, right? How many of y'all read the end of the books before you read the, end, the beginning of the book? Do y'all do that? Do any of you cheat? I see that hand. Two of you. Y'all came here together too, didn't you? Oh, my gosh. Right? So I do that too sometimes, like a novel. I'm like, I'm going to see how it ends, and then I'm going to see how it gets there. Right? But you see, Moses is saying there's a beginning and there's an end. There's this box called time and space. There's this expiration date on our life, on the world, on the heavens and the earth. There's a beginning and there's an end. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that God is outside of time. He is eternal. God is eternal. He has no beginning, and he has no end. He creates time. He's over time. He can work in time, but God is not limited by time. This is good news. You should be gripped by this. This is very gripping stuff. Because you and I, when we're young, you know when we're young. You know, when I was young, I was going to conquer the world. You know what I mean? I was going to go make a lot of money. I was going to buy Porsches, right? Lamborghinis. I really like Ferraris, right? So, I mean, I, I was like, I'm going to go conquer the world, and, and, and I'm invincible, and I got all the time in the world. And, of course, adults are always telling, you know, things like, you know, eh, you know, you need to make the right decisions. What? I'll make whatever decision I want. I'm good. I got all the time in the world. Next thing you know, you go from 16 to 25 in like a blink, and it scares you. You get to a point in time where you realize, I don't have all the time in the world. My life is limited. My, the time that I have to fulfill my dreams is running out. My vision of happiness and love and family and children and babies and, oh, it'll be fun to change diapers. Not so. But anyways. And you start getting older and older. And what you do, the older you get, the more you look at the young people in your life and you're like, you only have so much time. Make good decisions. And they're like, I got all the time in the world. But you see, Ecclesiastes says that God has, put, God has put eternity in our heart, that we have a capacity in our heart that goes beyond beginning and ends. We have a capacity in our heart. We long for the transcendent. We long for what's forever. We long for love that's unconditional. We long for eternity. And if you want eternity, you're not going to find it in impersonal things. You're going to find it in the personal Elohim. You're going to find it in God. God is the eternal one. That you and I must experience in order to move beyond the claustrophobia of our life. God, he's in charge of time. He's in charge of time and space. He is over time. He can work in time. He'll be there at the end of time. He was always there before time. God has always existed. This is important, actually, because, see, we're taught that maybe material is eternal. We're taught by naturalism, right, that there is no God, and that material is the only thing that's always existed. And somehow, this eternal existence of material kind of just decided, oh, I think I'll make complex life. Okay, and non-personal, eternal matter made complex personal matter and life like you and I ultimately, because given enough 
time and chance and billions of years, natural selection and so forth, these things could happen where you just out of non-personal matter that's always existed. I like Moses' theory much better, don't you? Moses is saying the eternal thing that's always been there has been God, a personal God, a real personality, complex, eternally complex God, created the heavens and the earth, everything you will see, all of the universe. God created this. He is eternal. That word created means he's not only eternal, he's sovereign because there's different words in the Bible for create. Like you got make. Like you and I make things, right? Like when I want to make something, I go to Home Depot, I buy some two-by-fours because I construct things all the time. I don't. I just lied. <laughs> I go get my power drill. I rarely use it. And I start making things because I have to use tools. And there's a Hebrew word for make. That's not what's being used here. Anytime the word create is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to God because it stands for being able to make something out of nothing. God didn't need to go to Home Depot. God doesn't need a power drill or hands or nails. All he has to do is just say, create, boom. Moses is talking about creation out of nothing. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, talks about that by faith we believe that God made visible things out of things that aren't visible. God is eternal. God is sovereign. Go to verse 2. By the way, our goal is to get through 31 verses this morning. And we're on verse 2. How do you feel? I feel good. I feel real good. Hey, man, praise God. Go tell people, come back next week. They'll never leave. Literally, you come to Cross Point Church, you will never leave. All right. Be gripped by the greatness of God. He's eternal. He's sovereign, all-powerful. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. When that's used together without form and void in the Hebrew, it was often used together in ancient Near Eastern literature, those without form and void. And in Egypt in particular, in Egypt in particular, it stood for non-existence. Sometimes it's used in the Old Testament to refer to a wilderness experience or a non-existent feeling. Isaiah, Jeremiah, who mourned over his nation and he looked at the dilapidation of Jerusalem and the people and he looked, and sometimes we feel like this too, don't we? We look out at our country and we feel like it's without form and void. It doesn't even exist anymore. There's no life anywhere. It's a wilderness. It's a dry and parched land. But in this situation and in this context, it stands for there's nothing. The earth wasn't there. There's no existence. It says, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is Nearly poetic language, it's certainly to be taken literally. I mean, God really did create the heavens and the earth, but it's, it's almost a, a, a fully uh, a grown poem of there's no existence, and God 
the Holy Spirit is standing over nothing, this wilderness of nothingness. And it says that the Holy Spirit of God is hovering there. And that word hovering always stood for a mother eagle who would hover over her young when she was teaching them to fly. So get this, watch this. Y'all probably seen this on like National Geographic or something like that. Anyways, the eagle takes the baby eagle, okay? I know I'm being very articulate right now. Careful. And, and the mother eagle would drop the baby eagle and then hover over it while the baby's trying to fly, right? So, so the baby eagle's like, and the mother eagle is hovering over the baby, right? And then before the baby can hit the ground, it grabs it. And what's the mother eagle do? It takes it back up and it says, try again. And it drops the baby eagle and it's like, like this, right? Just like that too. And, and the mother eagle hovers over and then grabs it, right? It's always used, this word, as intimacy, as, as uh, nurturing. It's a nurturing word. It's a mother word. It's, you know, when we think of our mamas, we think of nurturing, caring. We think of love. We think of compassion. Deuteronomy 32 God describes his love for Israel, for his people. He says in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 32, just listen to it and meditate upon it. And let's just worship. Let's be gripped by the greatness of God in his love for us. He, found, he says here, he found him, that's Jacob, in a desert land, in the howling waste of wilderness. He encircled him. That's God. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Have you ever thought about God hovering over you, even when you're falling, even when you're messed up, even when when you don't have things figured out? You don't know how to fly. Have you ever thought about and been gripped by the greatness of God's love to hover over you and to Keep you as the apple of his eye. Verse 11, listen to this, Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters. Everybody say flutters. Same word for hover in Genesis 1. Same Hebrew word. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them. Have you been caught by God? Have you ever been caught by God? Have you ever been spared because God spared you? Have you you ever been like, my death and my destruction is imminent. I'm seeing the ground. I'm fluttering in life. He spreads out his wings. He catches them. He bears them up on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Be gripped. The truth is, beloved, that, that, that verse 2 is the creation of the earth. It's the history of the creation of nothing to something. But this history of earth going from nothing to something is our testimony. 
This story of creation is what happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Do you know that in Genesis, one of the themes of the book of Genesis is barrenness? If you're taking down notes, write that down, barrenness. That's one of the themes. Barrenness. Who couldn't have a baby? Abraham and Sarah. She was barren. There's so many barren women who can't have babies in Genesis. And what does God do? God takes barrenness. He takes voidness. He takes emptiness. He takes wilderness. And he, and he does something with it. God can take our nothing and do something with it. Or think about our own, how we become Christians. How do we become Christians? Spiritually, we're in a wilderness. We're empty. We're shapeless. We have no shape. We, we, we're filled with void. And literally the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The old has passed away. What was the old? What was my life before life without, without Christ? My life was empty, shapeless, fluttering, falling to the ground, imminent destruction, stupidity ignorance and God in his grace and in his love his Holy Spirit hovered and he gave me new life in Christ and made me a new creation I used to say that stuff all the time when I was a young Christian I used to walk around at high school I go I'm a new creation and they would be like what has happened to him he's really weird I'm a new creation that's God's man that's our story the story of the earth and its origin. It's the story of our salvation. It's the story of the good news. It's the story of God's relationship to us. Be gripped by the greatness of God. And I'm only in the prologue. You say, man, you're giving me theory. You're giving me theology. You're giving me this whole God is big thing. I want some proof. I, I, want, I, want, I want something to speak to me. I, want, I don't want to hear any more of your theories, Pastor Josh. I want to see it at work. I want to see God in practice being great in eternity, in sovereignty, in love, in hovering. I want to see in practice God shaping what's shapeless, filling what's void. And so we have, and Moses gives us the six days of creation. Creation and nature is a witness. The earth, its ground, its grass, its trees, its fish, its waterfalls are all witnesses to the greatness of God. Romans 1.20, all of the attributes, the divine attributes of God have been communicated in what has been made. Therefore, they are without excuse. We have no excuse to not experience the greatness of this great and good God because nature bears witness. These six days bear witness. Look at them in Genesis 1 and verse 3 and be gripped by the greatness of God. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That was Sunday. Here's Monday. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst 
of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning. Second day. That's Monday. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. The waters were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and the fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. I don't even know what day of the week that is. Where am I at? All right, just make sure you're there. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And, and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. What day is that? I don't know, something. We're somewhere. I think we're coming up on Friday. Am I right? God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God makes man. God is God 24-7, man. If you're on Tuesday, God is God. He made it. If you're on Wednesday, God is still God. He's still great on Wednesday. It's not like he needs a religious day to be great. He's great 24-7. All the time, God is great. But when you begin to look at uh, these verses, you begin to look at the forming and the feeling, and you realize that Moses is structuring the historic account of creation in a very specific way. Because in day one, there's, uh, he's beginning to give shape to what's shapeless. He gives us light and darkness. Day two, he gives us sky and waters. Day three, he gives us land, seas, and vegetation. And then the next triad of three days, he begins to fill the shapes 
with animated things. So you got day three, stars, sun, and moon to go into the light and the darkness to define that. You got the fowl and the fish to go in the sky and the waters. You got the beast and the humans to go into the land and seas and eat them some fruit and some vegetables. Amen. And so you see what God is doing. He's taking verse two. Moses is taking verse two with the without form and, and void. And, and with the six days, he creates forms and then he fills them with animated creatures. How good is this God? Be gripped by him. We also learn how we might experience the goodness of God and the greatness of God in our life. We learn how he works, uh, what his love languages are. We learn, for example, in these six days of creation, that God speaks. Write that down. How does God like to relate to us through speaking. How does God change things through speaking? God is a preacher. And every time he says something, it happens. It says here that God speaks, or remember how it said, and God said. That happens ten times. God speaks, and it happens. God speaks, and it happens. How does God bring shape to what's shapeless? How does God feel our void and our emptiness? He speaks to us. And he's speaking to us every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There's not a day of your week where God's not going to be talking to you. That's what Moses is telling Israel. Hey, Israel. Hey, Israelites. Listen, there ain't no holy day that's like regulated and that's the only day that God speaks. Like God is the God of every single day and he's speaking through his word. His word is powerful doesn't return to his void. His word accomplishes his purpose. The question is, are we listening? We have scripture we can read every day. I've got my, you know what? I got to tell y'all something. If y'all have like a smartphone or if you got an iPad, you can get that U version. How many of y'all have that U version on your phones? And you get those Bible reading plans. And every single day, it reminds me, it's like, read your Bible. And I go to my Bible reading plan on U version on my iPhone And there I am. I'm just skimming do. You know what I mean? And I'm asking God, speak to me. Because I know, God, if you speak to me through Scripture, if you speak to me through the sermons about Scripture, if you speak to me, I know that your word can do things in my life. It can shape me. It can guide me. It can fill me. But, of course, the ultimate expression of the word of God is Jesus Christ. That's where it's all leading. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the agency by which God creates the world, as the New Testament says. In Colossians 1, it says that through Christ, the whole world was created, and through Christ, the whole world is sustained. God speaks. Ten times he speaks. Here's the second thing you can see. You look up at this chart here that I've made, and what you find out is not only does God speak, but God descends. God comes down. Everybody say, come down. Oh, if we were only on TV, I'd be like, come down, come down, come down. Right? God comes down. God descends. God created the heavens and the earth. And then all of these things point to a downward bent of God. First, you've got light and darkness down to the sky and waters, down to the land and seas, down to the vegetation. In the second three days, you've got the stars, the sun, 
And then the moon, he brings up the stars again in verse 19. That's just to remind them that stars aren't gods. They were created by God. The stars aren't anything special. They're just created beings, things. But stars, sun, moon, you got the fowl, the fish, the beast, and then the humans. The whole picture that Moses is literarily setting up is this downward move of God. God comes down. God descends to where we are at. This is the gospel. Religion will always come to us. You know what religion will say to us? It'll say, there's a ladder, and you've got to climb your way up to God. You better get from earth to heaven. You better do what's right. Religion will always say that the way to be saved is through works, that the way to be saved is to move from the earth all the way up. But Moses in the Bible has always said that the way that the life of God is experienced in the soul of a human being is not by the human being going up. It's by God coming down to us in our world. That in fact he created the earth for us to live here, to be a garden for us to experience him here. God comes down. Aren't you glad you don't have to go up to God? Isn't that a relief? Aren't you glad that your salvation is not based on your performance? It's a relief. God comes down. He gives me life. That is an awesome picture. Be gripped by the greatness of God. He speaks to you. He descends to you. God, thirdly, God enjoys. We see this seven times. It says here in the six days of creation that God says it is good. And seven in the Bible is the number for perfection, completion. In fact, on the seventh time in verse 31, when he says it's good, he says it is very good. Now, when God says it is good, it's not like God was like, man, I might jack this thing up. I'm going to make this deal. And... I hope I don't mess up. I hope I have a good day at work today. It's not like he's passing inspection, like, whoop. Okay, man, I did that right. Thank goodness I didn't get that wrong. When it says, God says it is good about everything he creates, what is happening in the nature of God. I love this about God. I love this about God. What it says is that God is enjoying He's enjoying his creation. He's enjoying his work. That God experiences pleasure. Oh, see, God's going, man, that is good. God is a happy God. Everybody say happy. Oh, God is a happy God. God is not anti-happiness, anti-pleasure, anti-those uh, things. God enjoys. And you know what? He calls you and I to enjoy too. It's good when we say, man, that's good. It's good when we look at each other and say, that's good. It's good when I walk, watch my wife walk across that living room and I go, oh, baby, you're good. That comes from God. It's awesome when she calls me Mr. King, and it's awesome when I call her Mrs. King. That's good. God, God, when he loves you, man, he takes pleasure in you. When God loves, he enjoys. God is full of 
pleasure, complete pleasure. He likes this. In fact, he created all of the universe and all of the world for his pleasure. God speaks, God descends, God enjoys. Six days of creation bears witness, and we are gripped by the greatness of God because God organizes. He's organized. He's orderly. One of the most important verses in my life was 1 Corinthians 14, 33. It says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And what I love about what he's doing is he's organizing. He's putting the the sky through the land and the land up in the sky. And he's taking birds. And he's like, no, 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 you belong up in the sky. And he's taking fish, whoop, into the water. He's taking things, separating things, moving things, shaping things. And he's ordering things. God is a God of order. God is a God of organization. And I really like, how many of y'all every now and then, like sometimes in my life, I feel like that emotionally and spiritually, I'm so disorganized, Tarzan couldn't get through the living room of my soul. Amen? I feel, I feel like I got all this baggage that just needs to be organized. I need my emotions organized. I need my thoughts organized. I need some new filing cabinets for my anger management issues. I need some... I, I, like that, I like that reality show, Hoarders. Have you all ever watched Hoarders? You know what I mean? And there, there's these hoarders, and, and they, like, they hoard things in their homes, right? And there's like dead cats in the corner underneath the stack of paper. You know what I'm saying? And the guys come in, and they go, we're going to help you clean this up, right? And, and they're like, and they're stressed out because they're addicted to their stuff, and they're hoarding stuff, right? And they got all this stuff in their house. And, they're, and, they're, and, and so then the TV show guy's like, you want us to help you, don't you? And the dude that's been hoarding stuff is like, yes. And the guy's like, now I'm going to pick up a tack in your living room. See this little tack? And I want you to take this tack, and I want you to go outside and throw it away in the trash can. Can you do that? Yes. So he takes the little tack, and he's shaking the whole way. He's going to the, to the garbage can. And then he gets to the garbage can with the tack, and he's like, I can't do it. I got to keep it. And he, like, walks away. I thought that was really funny. But anyways, <laughs> God comes into, you know, emotionally we're hoarders, you know. Spiritually, we're just hoarding things. And we got all this stuff in our spiritual living room. And Tarzan couldn't get through it. And we can barely make it through. And there's like dead spiritual cats in our spiritual life, right? And God says, I'm going to come into your life like I did the world. And I'm going to organize your life. I'm going to put the lands of your life where they belong. I'm going to put the waters where they I'm going to take your sky. And I'm going to clear it. God, it turns out, is an environmentalist, and first issue is the emissions of our soul. The first issue is the pollution of our hearts, and he wants to clear it out and organize it and bring order. Moses is telling Israel, Israel, you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got the law, you've got this God, he is commanding you, he's speaking to you so that he can order your life. This is good news, and God doesn't come to us, and he doesn't say, you know, If you want to experience me, you better get your life together. God says, let me in. 
Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever lets me in, I will come in and eat. God doesn't look at you and say, you better get some church before you think about coming to me. He just says, open up your heart. I I descend. I come down. I speak. I, I take things that are shapeless and empty and void and wilderness, and I organize it. Be gripped by the greatness of God. God speaks, God descends, God enjoys, God organizes. You see, nature is a witness to the greatness of God. That's what it is. The earth, the universe, all point to a meaningful, relational God. And it's interesting because when we start talking about nature... This is where the big questions are. You know, did we come from uh, primordial ooze? Did we come from a? Did we come through an evolutionary uh, a process of natural selection and and people? And so there's all these different views of nature. And Moses, in a roundabout way, he addresses mythologies. Mythologies about nature. False perspectives about how people view matter. And the first kind of mythology that Moses addresses in the six days of creation is ancient mythology. And ancient mythology was contemporary to Moses. And Moses knew all about ancient mythologies. He knew all about creation accounts. There was other creation accounts in the ancient Near Eastern world. There was Egyptian creation accounts. There was Canaanite creation accounts. You can read them today. You can go to the library. You can pick up some of these ancient mythologies, and they have creation accounts. And Moses knew of them. Moses was familiar with them, and I'll tell you why. Because Moses grew up in Egypt. Moses went to Egypt high school. Moses was on the the, the horse chariot racing team fighting for the fighting pharaohs. You know what I'm saying? This was his high school. He lettered. Uh, Sometimes I have way too much fun with this stuff. You know what I mean? But Stephen tells us in the book of Acts, he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and his deeds. He was taught in his high school. He was taught in his junior high. He was taught in his college that there was many different gods. Gods were everywhere. Gods were in the sun. Gods were in the stars. Gods were in the water. In one of the creation accounts, it says that the earth is the result of a dead body of a God who got defeated in war. Literally, one creation account says we're walking on top of the body of a dead God who got beat in a battle. And ancient mythology says there's gods everywhere. There's a battle. These gods are capricious. These gods are limited. They might lose their battles. Moses was taught this. And those Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, they heard rumors about these gods. What if your God is not right? What if your God loses to the other God? What if your God loses to the Canaanite God? Hey, slaves, you who are in the wilderness and God's calling you to go into the promised land filled with milk and honey and butter. Hey, what about those giants over there on the other side? And what about their gods? Their gods might beat your God. After all, you've been slaves for hundreds of years. This is ancient mythology. 
And Moses is saying, you can see what he's saying. You you see what he's telling Israel. They're reading this for the first time as slaves being delivered from Egypt, going into the promised land. And Moses is saying, there ain't no God in the stars. There's no God in the sun or in the waters. There's no gods in the ocean. The earth is not the body of a dead God. There's only one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and he's the God over all peoples, not just local peoples. And and when God tells you to cross the Jordan and to go into your promised land, Israel, even though you still have a slave mentality, even though you continue to have a a mentality of murmuring and grumbling and you're all upset about the wilderness and you don't know if anything good's going to happen to you, listen, if God calls you to a land and to a purpose, you can trust him. You can respond. Ancient mythology was false. Moses knew it. He had talked to God. He knew that God was the great I am, the only God. But Moses, without really knowing it, and helpful to us certainly because the word of God is timeless, Moses is confronting in the six days of creation modern mythology. And modern mythology about nature is completely different. Modern mythology about nature is that nature is the only thing you've got. There is no God. There's no gods at all. What we learned, I, was a, I went to a high school called Western Heights. We were the Jets. We didn't have chariot races in my day. We had basketball and tennis Baseball. And what we learned in our school and what we learn in our schools is a modern mythology, just as grievous as ancient mythology. Modern mythology says there's no God, that material is the only eternal thing, and therefore you should live for the material. You should live for the stuff you see and you feel and you touch. If you're not getting the great stuff that money can buy, then you're not living because this is all you got. You got no purpose, you got no meaning, there's no divine, there's no metaphysical, there's no beginning except a random accident, there's no future except for some supernova or environmental pollution that's going to kill us all or, or whatever. All you got is now and all you got is what you can see and touch and taste, so you better go get it. You better go get it with all your might. You better fight for your life because there's no God. Moses tells us, how can you believe this when when creation is so orderly? How How can you believe this when creation is crying out order and meaning and purpose? How can you do that when everything is an arrow pointing to the very meaning that we have? You see, ancient mythology... Modern mythology has nothing to compare to creation theology. Creation theology says it means something. There is a God. We can know him on this earth. We can experience him and follow him to all that's good and light and orderly. He's not confusing. He's ordered. Life without him is confusing. Life without him is empty. Life without God is is a mess. But with God in our life, we have meaning. Be gripped. By the greatness of God. You can see it in the six days. Nature is a witness to his greatness. 
the greatness of God, the witness of God as nature, and the likeness of God as human beings. We come to Genesis 1 and verse 26 when God stops and, and the text changes. It's, it's very rhythm and flows and it's, it's a hymn. It's a hymn of history. And, and, and it's real and it happened. But Moses is he's writing in this parallel way. But when he gets to the creation of man and woman, you get the feeling that something has changed. Something is different. And he says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It should be noted those plural pronouns point to the Trinity That God is one God, but he's composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the us God. And it makes sense that the us God would not create a me people, but an us people. That he wouldn't just make a man and then go, good. He would make a man and a woman because flowing from his nature is community and relationship. This God is social. He's relational. He's personal. Everybody say personal. God's personal. He's got personality. He's known what love and relationships like in eternity past because there's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a great small group community. They're like a life group, man. And they've been talking to each other in eternity past, and he's been sharing love and giving love, and he creates human beings to be an expression of that community. If God is Trinity, then community is the point. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 8, verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that is angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The psalmist is saying what Moses is saying, that the pinnacle of creation, that the crown jewel of creation is male and female, is human beings, that the earth exists for them to experience and to uh, follow the divine purposes that God has for them. You have meaning. You were put on earth on purpose, not by accident. And you have the image of God. You have the imprint. Back in those days, you know what they do? Those kings, and what kings and rulers have always done is they put their image on coins and on statues. Back in those days, back in like the ancient world, statues were a big deal. If you were a king or a ruler or a pharaoh, you'd, take, you'd make a, a likeness of yourself and you put your statue in all the villages in the town. And every time somebody saw that statue, they were remembered, man, that Pharaoh, he's, he's awesome. He's my ruler, and this is his country. 
This happens even in, in, in Rome later on, of course. Uh, there's always been images on coins, and those coins go out. And every time you see the image on the coin, it reminds you of who's the Caesar, that Caesar is the ruler, that Caesar is the Lord. Even on our coins, we have presidents on our coins, on our money. And we, listen, we love these presidents on our money because it always means, you know, depending on what president you got in your wallet, that's the difference between a $50 bill and a $100 bill. Can I get an amen? We like our presidents on those bills. We're reminded of our great history, of our great leadership, of, you know, the American dream. God says, you have my image and likeness on you. You exist to go and tell the earth and spread the news that I'm glorious, that I'm great. You are to tell people you've been gripped by the greatness of God, by the likeness of God. You are to represent me in this world. You're to stand in your village, in your community, in your schools, in your marriage, to your children. You're to stand there and say, there is a God and he made me. There is a God and he's glorious and good. There is a God and he's eternal and he's, and he's sovereign and he's loving and he speaks and and he descends. There is a God. And I want to represent him. That baby's representing God today, amen? I like that baby. That baby crying out. Representing the image of God. Image of God in the Bible stands for representing him morally. You know, you know listen, what, what's different between us and the animals? The difference between us and the animals is that we have a strong sense of right and wrong. Even you could take the person who doesn't believe in God or metaphysical realities or Genesis 1. They laugh. They mock at Genesis. Genesis, God and create, whatever. They, they laugh at this stuff. But you know what? If you cut them off on the road, they're going to demand justice. They're going to roll down their window and say, you cut me off. That sense of morality, that sense of justice born in all of us. Listen, you might not know God, but you have his image. You have his likeness. That sense of right and wrong, that comes from God. The image of God also is our spiritual life. We were made and imprinted to have fellowship and relationship with God, to pray to him, to have a spiritual life. That's different in us than anything else that's been created. The, the trees can't have a spiritual life. The fish can't have a spiritual life. Free Willie, but he's not going to ever worship God. Amen? We're made in the image and the likeness of God. We're social. We men, we like our woman, and our women, they like us. We like our marriages. We were made to be in marriage. We were made to be, uh, in some cases, not in all cases, parents. We were made to have friendships and community, to not just live to eat, but to live to talk. Now, don't you, isn't that the best stuff of life? Isn't, isn't that, isn't that, how many of y'all are going to Super Bowl party next Sunday after you go to Cross Point Church? best stuff is friendship. The best stuff, I mean, you just sit there and you go, man, this is better than a million bucks sitting here hanging out with you, drinking a Coca-Cola Classic. Yes. Like those old beer commercials, it doesn't get any better than this. You're sitting around a campfire looking gay. Anyways. <laughs> it, it, 
friend, we were made to be social. This is the image of God. This is the likeness of God. We're representing Trinity. He is relationship. We are social. And everywhere we go, we're like, we're not statues. We're moving images declaring that we're social because God is social. We are loving because God is love. We love because he first loved us is what the Bible says. I could go on about the image of God. I could, I, I could go on, but... We were made, we exist to serve divine purposes in this world. And he wants the whole earth to know it. He wants everybody to know it. Here's the first great missional great commission. Go, fill the earth, be fruitful. Make sure that everybody on planet earth knows there's one God and he's great and he descends and he speaks and he loves. Let everybody know this. But we know, you know, we go, we, we read this, and Genesis 1 is so idyllic, you know. It's just like this, it's this perfect world. And there's no tornadoes, and there's no hurricanes, and there's no Middle Eastern conflict. All you get from Moses in Genesis 1 is everything's good, and people are good, and everybody's happy. But we know that this is something's gone wrong. Something has changed. Something has been deconstructed from creation. Something has happened to human beings because human beings socially have sinned against each other. We don't know how to get along with everybody. We have jealousies and envies. I want what you want. I need what you need. Spiritually, we've, we're broken down from God. We've been divided from God. Uh, 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 intellectually, we, we deny the truth of God. It's not science against God that bothers us. It's bias against God that's bothering us. We rebelliously fall against God. We have lost not the image but the perfection of the image of God in us. And we ask ourselves, how can we get back to Genesis 1? How can we begin to travel back and become what we were made to be, to walk in the divine purposes, to be gripped by the greatness of God again? And John the evangelist tells us that the reason why Jesus came into the world is so that we could be restored to God. And John says in his prologue, referring to Genesis 1, John says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John is saying, you know what? We've left Genesis 1. We've rebelled against God. We've run from God. We've muddied the image and the likeness, and the only hope we have is the fact that God came down and God became a human being. The creator of Genesis 1 took on and added to his divine nature and attributes human flesh. He appeared in the flesh so that we could see the glory. He appeared in the flesh so that we could be restored to God in our relationship with him. And John the Baptist tells the world, he goes out into a wilderness, into, he goes out into the wilderness and the deserts of Israel, and he tells them out in that empty and void, that place without form, without shape, that place that represents our own spiritual thirst. He goes out there and he says to us that the way to experience and to be gripped by God is through Jesus, and the way to come to Jesus is to acknowledge 
As John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus was there in Genesis 1-3. Jesus was the agency that brought about light. Jesus was the agency that separated land from water. And when you and I ran from God with all our might, Jesus came down in the human flesh and he says, I'm going to recreate you. I'm going to make you new. But you've got to come to me and bring your sin. I'm going to take away your sins. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to be the lamb that takes away the very thing that has broken your relationship with God. You see, it's all about Jesus. He is the key to being gripped by the greatness of God. He's the key to understanding nature. He's the key to understanding relationship. Jesus is the Savior. And so if you need to be gripped by the greatness of God, and you need to behold God again like Moses calls us to, you've got to believe in Jesus and follow him and be his follower. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and Genesis 1, it's such a great witness to you. And I admit freely as a pastor and as a husband and a daddy and just a man that I am not always gripped by your greatness. But I thank you for your grace. You continue to come into my life. You continue to give me grace and forgiveness. And I pray that we all would experience that. But then I pray that you would move us up and beyond, that you would move us beyond doubts, that you would move us beyond the mythologies of our modern world, the mythologies of the ancient world, and you would move us into creation theology, that we can behold, we can know who you are, we can experience you in this world, and that you can lead us no matter what day of the week it is. You are God all the time, So be God of our life. And Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross for our sins.